a look at the Invest Southwest program and why affordable housing can sometimes demand more in construction costs than their luxury counterparts. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news from the local housing market. It, it's really pretty amazing to me, you know, the, that rule that if you don't boom, you don't bust has definitely proven itself. And we'll hear from a local real estate agent with a message for Chicagoans. If everybody got together, the business community and all of the great minds that are in Chicago and these great universities and these great entrepreneurs rowing in the right direction, I think there could be uh, some some solutions to these problems. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, June 29th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a WinTrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local WinTrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Super. Well, as ever, you've churned out a whole lot of stories in the last week, so let's talk about them. Okay. Let's start by talking about how uh, Chicago is now the second city for home price growth. Tell me about this. You know, this is very interesting. This is the Case-Shiller data, which, as you know, I report month after month and have been uh, since before I came to Cranes in 2014, but in a five-year period that ended at the beginning of the COVID boom, Chicago was... 18th, 19th, 20th on the list of 20 cities, month after month after month. We kept noting that Chicago's prices were the slowest among big American cities. There are 20 cities in this index. And in recent months, um, you and I have discussed how more and more cities are seeing their prices fall as the boom fades, but Chicago's haven't fallen. So what has happened is as a lot of those cities fall, we move higher and higher up the list. I didn't think this was going to come around so quickly. We had the second highest price growth of 20 major cities in America in April. This data is just out now in late June. It's a nationwide index, takes them a while to process. So in April, according to the Case-Shiller Index, our home prices, our home values were up 4.1%. The only one of those 20 big cities that was higher was Miami, at 5.2%. And I think what I said in the story is that if if the housing market were the Aesop story of the tortoise and the hare, Chicago's been the tortoise because we've been going slow, 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 but we haven't had to stop. We haven't been the hare who flew out ahead and then burned out. One of the examples I use in part because you and I have talked about this city so many times on the podcast is Phoenix, Prices at the same time as ours were up 4.1%. Phoenix's prices were down 6.1%. That's April 2023. In April 2022, Phoenix's prices were up 31% for the month over the same time a year earlier. 
Ours were up 13%. So our prices were going up, but they weren't going up like the fizzy places like Phoenix, where they were up over 30%. Um, so a lot of those places have really started to see the air come out of it, but we just keep plodding along. Yeah. And it's another example of how uh, we didn't have these wild swings in either direction and how that's paying off now, whereas the cities that we saw that just went gangbusters, you know, they there was a bubble or it had to level off and have had this drop off. But I think the tortoise and the hare is kind of a perfect example for us that we've just kind of done this slow and steady winning the race sort of thing. It, it's really pretty amazing to me, you know, the, that rule that if you don't boom, you don't bust has definitely proven itself in the in the last several months in Chicago and a few other cities, but also just the idea that we're the second of 20. I mean, of course, Chicago prides itself on being second, the second city <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but um, we're, we're at second where, you know, 2017, 2018, I was constantly writing we're the 20th, we're the 18th. It, it's sort of remarkable to think that we're at the top of that list a few years later. It's another example of how the COVID housing boom just changed everything in real estate markets all over America. Yeah, that's right. Now, related to this, other reporting that you've done uh, looked at how city home prices are down for the seventh month in a row. Yes, um, I'll get to that. City prices down seven months as of May, down eight of the past 10 months. But let me first do the little explanation that we always have to do at this time of the month. What I just discussed was Case Schiller which is an index, a different mathematical tool, and it is for April. What I'm about to discuss is simple math on the median price, the list of everything sold in the Chicago area, and it's for May. So the numbers are different. Um, they tend to track pretty closely. What we see next month for May from Case Schiller will have similarities to what we're seeing now. May from the Illinois Realtors. I always feel like I need to say that because the two numbers do appear to be in conflict. They're not. That's right. And also, even though you always are so conscientious about doing that disclaimer, you will still get clobbered on Twitter by somebody who says, that's not the same. You just contradicted yourself like month after month after yes. month. <laughs> Already got that this morning. It had to say these are two different reports. <laughs> yeah. One is an index with all sorts of um, mathematical flourishes that go into it and is national. And it's based on same, same house sales, a house that sold in 2023. What did that same house sell for in 2010, et cetera. So with all of the disclaimers in place, let's go on to the May housing prices. This comes from Illinois Realtors. This is data collected by Chicago Association of Realtors and Illinois Realtors for the nine county metro area. And what we saw there when that data came out uh, late last week, is that for the seventh month in a row, prices in the city, as opposed to the metro area, which we were just discussing, prices in the city are down. Eight of the past 10 months, prices have been down in the city. The median sale price in May in the city was $335,000, which was down 4.4% from a year earlier. And again, that was the seventh month in a row. This is pretty upsetting because as we've discussed month after month, couldn't really find a solution. And then I started asking some analysts and found population loss, crime, and the perception of crime, uh, work from home, which means that you don't necessarily have to be in the city near the job centers, has gone on longer than we expected. And then there's just natural 
the natural cycle of people with kids moving to suburban school districts, which may have been hastened in recent years by, or accelerated, I should say, in recent years by perceptions that school quality uh, has, has taken a hit in the past few years. Even so, it is true with all those things happening, prices are down citywide. And then separately, because people have beat me up on Twitter saying, well, the city's a very big piece of geography. And here's another disclaimer. In the city, data is always reported separately for houses and for condos and townhouses, a detached housing versus attached housing. So I have two separate lists here. Prices down citywide. Also, just some of the places where prices are down for single family homes throughout 2023, Albany Park, Avondale, North Center, Hyde Park. West Town, there are others, but those are the ones I wrote down. And condos, again, reported separately, prices down throughout 2023 in the Loop, South Shore, Hyde Park, Irving Park. The only one where we can say for sure that prices are down overall is Hyde Park because it appeared on both my list of uh, places where house prices are down and pl places where attached housing or condo and townhouse prices are down. So we are seeing that this is throughout the city. It doesn't mean that your individual house didn't attract multiple bidders, sell over the asking price, but en masse, Chicago data and data for individual neighborhoods does show that um, we're taking a hit on ho housing prices. The metro area, including both the suburbs and the city, had one of its smallest price growths. Again, city prices were down 4.4%. If you include the entire nine-county metro area, Prices were up 0.9%, which is a lot like being flat from the same time a year ago. And as we've discussed a few times, Chicago plays a big role in that because between one out of four and one out of five sales in that bag are sales in the city. So as city prices drop, the weakness starts to show up in the metro area price figure. But prices haven't dropped in the metro area. They were just up little enough to feel like they were flat from a year before. And again, I, I think that will be a, a, a data point that we'll look at when we look at the whole span of the last, you know, three to five years that will kind of tell this interesting story of, about Chicago, about what people did and, and how they, uh, what they did during the pandemic, what they did as the pandemic started to wane, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, one thing I didn't say about Case Schiller that figures in a little bit to what you've said is I mentioned that in April, home values were up 4.1%. That's actually, it's up from the month before, which was up from the month prior. So that shrinkage in price growth that came around pretty abruptly when interest rates started rising um, seems to be growing back. Uh, we, we went from having price growth of 10, 11, 12% down into the threes pretty quickly, and now we're back up into the fours. So it appears that the hardest hit from interest rates may be behind us. Well, kind of related to this, you were talking about the Illinois Association of Realtors. Uh, you spoke with a realtor. Well, you, sp you always speak with lots of realtors. All week. <laughs> All week. That, that's kind of your whole deal. It's true. You recently uh, spoke with a Chicago real estate agent who sent a newsletter out to about 20,000 people urging them to stay in Chicago. Tell me about this letter. Yeah. You know, he sort of walked right into the fray. You and I have talked about this this fires all over the place on Twitter. I had this story a couple of weeks ago about how crime is one of the factors um, holding down sales and prices in the city. This real estate agent, Mike Connor of um, At Properties, Christie's International Real Estate, 
sent out a newsletter. You know, real estate agents send out newsletters to all their clients. A lot of the ones, I get them from a lot of agents. And a lot of them are like, here are five cool things to do this weekend. Or here are the colors that are popular. And his newsletter was a little more hard-edged. It said, Chicago, now is not the time for quitters, which, of course, caught my eye. I'm sort of at the front lines of this because since I'm a realtor that sort of has sold into the second home market for such a long time, what I saw was there's been a wave of people who have said, well, listen, we're going to purchase a primary home uh, and we'll sell Chicago. Uh, We don't like sort of what's happening there and we're afraid and um, it's getting more expensive. So it's a little bit more than anecdotal, right? It's something sort of that I've seen for, for a long time. And um, the, the people that, that I speak to are, speak with a, a level of conviction and a level of concern. And uh, they've decided to move out of the city uh, and take a primary home in, in Indiana or Michigan. And that's sort of what got me started on the, on the whole thinking about this and eventually writing about it. In the last several years, we have had population drain and there is talk of more people leaving because there's always the question, will crime force people to leave the city or I should say encourage people to leave the city? It's on everybody's lips. So what he said is, you know, if Chicago supported your livelihood, if you became successful in Chicago, you have sort of an obligation. He used the term obligation in his newsletter you have sort of an obligation to stay and help be part of the solution. Don't leave. There's there's crime and then there's the perception of crime, which are two completely different things, right? And there's kind of a narrative that one builds. And then people can kind of sink into a confirmation bias one direction or another around that narrative. You know, people, for whatever reason, they love to share bad news. And that's the other thing that got me started down the road on this letter is that it just seemed that uh, more people... Uh, speak so passionately about bad news, and why weren't there more people speaking more passionately about the good news? And so, part of the newsletter talked about, uh, you know, just the everyday things that occur, the small victories that occur every day in the city. And I lay just three little things out in my newsletter that I see walking around the city, and why we don't celebrate these small little victories and the people of this city that pulled together and push it forward every single day. Um, and, and so that was really talk about how wonderful the city is uh, and wanted more people to talk more about that versus the constant negative sort of information that's out there. And it was sort of interesting. I was fascinated that somebody who's in the job of marketing, right, um, who in many other bodies would be sending out a newsletter that said, here are the great street festivals this week. Um, he waded right into it. Why isn't there, if the city was there for you, was there for your parents, was there for your children, why isn't there a commitment to do whatever it is, how small it might be, to try to change the things that are going on uh, in the city? Now, you know, the economic woes are, are, you know, are monumental, um, and crime is certainly an issue, but I don't think there are things, and I don't think I'm being sort of burying my head in the, in the sand about all this, I think they're all solvable, solvable problems. And if everybody got together, the business community 
and all of the great minds that are in Chicago and these great universities and these great entrepreneurs and everybody got together. I think there could be, uh, uh, and working together. And as the newsletter said, everybody rowing in the right direction. I think there could be uh, some, some solutions to these problems. He's been a source of mine for quite a while. And he, he grew up in the city, moved to Michigan city, Indiana has recently moved back. He and his wife raised their kids. They've moved back. So he has sold to a lot of people who were from Chicago buying second homes in Northwest Indiana, Southwest Michigan. And he said that a lot of what he was seeing is I I was going to have a part-time place in Michigan and a part-time place in Chicago. I'm getting rid of the place in Chicago and going full-time in uh, Northwest Indiana because of the issues in Chicago. That's what he has seen most. But I spoke to other real estate agents who said, you know, there was a shooting on the block and people called me and said, I need to find out what my house is worth. There were um, there was one example a real estate agent gave me where um, some guys were they pulled up in front of in the street. They pulled up next to a car and they were jacking the catalytic converters. And the guy on the porch says, good morning, sort of like, hey, my eyes are on you. And they back the car up in front of his house and say, do you want to effing die today? And, you know, so the question at that point is, wow, um, <laughs> do I stay in this neighborhood? That man did. Uh, but the agent said, you know, he every time something like this happens, people call him. And again, this is a different agent from the one who sent the newsletter. And, you know, in the course of a week, I talk to so many real estate agents. And even if I don't bring it up, the question of crime comes up. Some of them say, oh, this is so overblown. Some of them say, uh, yeah, I'm getting calls all the time. So this became sort of a discussion point. And as I think you saw on Twitter, people talked about it quite a bit. I have also had a bunch of real estate agents who have emailed me either to say, oh, that guy's a clown or, oh, that guy's my hero. Um, They're about 50-50. It's pretty fascinating. There's no question that people are talking about this issue, whether it's a narrative that you believe. You know, that's one of the things we keep running into is people saying, oh, that's not really happening. It is definitely happening that people are discussing whether crime is a problem and is sending people out of the city. Whether crime is a problem and sending people out of the city is separate from whether people are talking about that. And there are quite a few of them. Which is why I appreciate that you often say crime and the perception of crime, the narrative around crime, the narrative around Chicago, because those are all different things, really. They are, yeah. And and one of the reasons people's perception of crime seems to have changed in the last few years is that, I mean, I hear it all the time and it's in a lot of the news reports. Um, It used to be possible to sit in your largely white north side neighborhood and think, well, all the crime is somewhere else, but a lot of it is now in the largely white north side neighborhood. So people are perceiving it more as a threat to um, their livelihood living in uh, these formerly safe feeling neighborhoods. Right, right, right. Well, I think there's kind of this like a confirmation bias that goes both ways, right? There's what you just described. And then there's the like, well, no, I've never seen anything. So it can't be that. Yes. Like crime is elevated in a lot of cities. It's not just Chicago, but confirmation bias plays a huge role both directions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yes. In fact, because there are people who who have said to me, who have emailed me, who have said on Twitter, I don't know anybody who's left the city. You know, how can I argue? Yes, you probably don't. And that probably confirms your bias that people aren't leaving the city. But these other agents are saying I get calls every every week. Well, let's take a look at some some houses in particular. Uh, a 
A Lakeshore Drive condo formerly owned by Michael Jordan has, has sold for just under $7 million. Tell me about this place. We don't, we don't talk about a lot of Jordan sales. No, no, we don't. We mostly talk about how his house in Island Park is still on the market after umpteen years. Uh, so this is a, a condo on Lakeshore Drive that when Michael and Juanita Jordan had a big mansion in Highland Park in the 90s, they bought a place in the city. They bought a place on Lakeshore Drive, 8,000 square feet on two floors overlooking Lakeshore Drive. And then when they got divorced, she got the condo. He got the house in Highland Park. I wonder now if he wishes it had been the opposite because she sold the condo not too long later. They got divorced in 2006. In 2014, she sold the condo for $3.2 million. May not have been much of a gain. Um, I don't know exactly what they paid uh, in the public records. It, it's not clear what they paid. The Chicago Tribune at some point reported that they paid $3 million. I don't know what they paid. But she sold for three point two after owning the place for about fifteen years. Uh, she sold it in twenty fourteen, and then it just resold. Uh, sorry, it just resold a couple of months ago, but showed up. It was a private sale, so it didn't show up in the real estate records. Only showed up in um, the public land records, and we found it later. Um, sold for a little over six point eight, six point eight two million. That's nearly. It's nine years after Juanita sold it. And it's interesting because everybody remembers it. You know, if you have been living there since 2014, I'm sure everybody's saying to you, oh, you live in Michael Jordan's old condo. Uh, and it came when the sale came up, I realized, oh, yeah, this is Michael Jordan's old condo. Because once he's been there, you know, his halo hangs over it forever. Uh, they sold it for $6.82 million. Again, it was private. It wasn't listed on the, on the real estate sites. But that comes in, that one makes it the top six prices of the year are all city condos. So, you know, we're kind of jumping back and forth on this narrative here. Oh, people are leaving the city. Oh, crime. But but also true. Yeah. Um, the six highest price sales of the year so far are in the city. Eight of the top 10 are in the city. The other two are in Lake Forest. And at 6.82 million, this is this is pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. And there are some photos at chicagobusiness.com. Everybody can check those out. Yeah. And let me be clear about that. I tried to reach the sellers who are the people who bought it from uh, Juanita Vinoy Jordan in 2014, did not get any comment from them or from their real estate agent. So what I don't know is what have they done to it since they bought it in 2014? I assume they've done a whole lot to it. Don't know. And the photo, the only photo we have is from back when it was for sale by Juanita. It may look very different now. And and we talked about another place of hers. It was a, a townhouse in uh, kind of that. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite River West. What is that area? Kingsbury kind of, Estates. That's what it is. Yeah. Yes. The old parking lots for Montgomery Wards years ago in River North. Yeah. That's a couple of years ago. And um, she sold that at a loss. So I think. If I remember the chronology, she gets this condo we're talking about in the divorce. And a few years later, she buys the townhouse in River North, then took a few years to sell the condo. And then it's just a couple of years ago that she sells the one in uh, River North in Kingsbury Estates. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take a look at uh, another house. In, in fact, not one house. Let's talk about five houses in particular connected to Larry Booth. You know, this was a really fun interview. I got to say, Amy, I have been writing about Larry Booth designs for a very long time. And last week I got to sit down with him, went to his office. Uh, he had time. 
I had time. We just talked about houses he has designed. And it was, it was fascinating because this is a man who has been doing architecture in Chicago for six decades. The reason to do the story is that he's just co-authored a book with a writer named Jay Pridmore uh, about, it's sort of a career retrospective of all his buildings of all types, high rises, clubhouses, institutional buildings. We talked specifically about the houses and it's really fascinating to talk to an architect who next week turns 87, who has been working in Chicago since the 1960s, designing buildings. And one of the first questions I said was, so do you remember the first house you designed? And he said, oh, yeah. And he flipped the book right to it and talked about exactly how this uh, modernist building built in 1969 in Kenwood came to be, remembered all the details about how the uh, it was part of a larger lot and they split the lot off. They had an art collection, so they needed tall walls. I mean, this is something he did in 1969, or he actually did earlier, and it was completed in 1969. And he has done dozens of buildings since then, but this one was clear. And so then he went forward 54 years to a house that's being built now in Lincoln Park and explained to me how the one in 69 in Kenwood is related to the one he's doing in 2023 in Lincoln Park. This was like, I don't even need to be paid to write this kind of story because it's so much fun to talk to somebody like that. Um, (laughs) It was fascinating. He's done, for people who don't know, Larry Booth, the, the larger buildings they'd be aware of would be things like the very beautiful rehab of the Palmolive building into condos on North Michigan Avenue, the Joffrey Tower on State Street. There is a very beautiful research building at the Botanic Garden in Glencoe, the Cole Children's Museum in Glenview, dozens of others that people would be aware of. Oh, the Old Republic Windows Building, um, lots of really great, as I said, institutional and other kinds of buildings. But you also very likely have passed his houses. They're all over Lincoln Park in the 70s, 80s, 90s. He designed lots of houses in Lincoln Park, one of which is in this story. Just a fascinating guy. Absolutely fascinating. The book is a couple hundred pages. We actually talked about more than five, but I had to hold the story to five houses he did. And they're all just these really beautiful structures designed with with real thought in mind. You know, these aren't the baby boomer dream houses out in Buffalo Grove. These are houses where somebody really had a thought and carried it through architecturally. You know, you were talking about what it meant to do that story. And I think that comes through in the story as you're reading it. You can tell. I'm like, oh, I can tell Dennis had this meant a lot to you. I could just tell, like, as I was reading that, that it really seemed like it was. That I was kind of sitting there a god. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Right, right. right. And can I also say for the purposes of this podcast, Larry Booth, like I said, is about to turn 87. This is not a man where you sit down, you know, and, and like memory lapses or he sits in the chair and everybody else walks around. Larry Booth came out to the sidewalk from the office to get me, walked me in. We talked at a rapid clip for about an hour, that sort of thing. I'm not trying to be ageist at all. I'm just saying this was an 87-year-old man at the top of his game. I hope that in, let's say, 40 years, when I'm 87, (laughs) (laughs) I'm at the top. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. This is a man who clearly has had a great career is very bright and is thriving on that. 
which I was very impressed by. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, again, head to chicagobusiness.com and check out that story. You mentioned Glencoe. Talk to me about a house born in the 50s, but reborn in the 2000s. Yeah. So born in the 50s, does that make you think of the police song? A little bit. Early police song. It's been in my head since I wrote that headline. Um, This is the one I sort of teased you with at the end of the last podcast, because this is by Greta Letterer. Let's talk about the house first. Um, Built in 1951, and the current sellers bought it in the early 2000s. It was 50 years old. It needed some help, and they brought it back. They really kind of channeled the 50s, not only um, in the hard elements they did to the house, but also the decorative stuff, the furnishings and, and fabrics. And it looks really good. One of the very cool things they did is the family room has windows on two sides and they put fountains outside both sets of windows so that when you're inside, whichever way you look, you're looking out at moving water, which is just a really kind of a cool, kind of a Zen thing to do. The house was built in a way that you really, you see nature wherever you are. And they really tried to enhance that. Uh, they're asking 1.7 million. It's on the west side of Glencoe. It's a very nice house. Now let's get to Greta Letterer. I love Larry Booth. I love Greta Letterer more. <laughs> she is somebody, I think somebody should write a screenplay about. Greta Letterer, 1949, and her husband, a manufacturer, are building a house in Glencoe. All the architects present to them these sort of traditional styles. And so they build one and then she decides, I'm not moving in there. I don't want one of these old-fashioned houses. I want something modern. She was not an architect. She was not a designer. She was a former Miss Detroit. And she designed a house for them, a modern house for them, 1949. Well, flash forward about 10 years, and she's one of the major builders on the North Shore. There's a Tribune story in 1957 saying she had built $10 million worth of homes in the past decade or less which is the equivalent today of $108 million worth of homes. Wow. And she was a woman in a very male-dominated business. Sure. And without architecture training. Without architecture training, she just had this feeling, as I think a lot of people did after World War II, we need a break from the past. We don't want any of this traditional stuff. We want something modern. She designed uh, two subdivisions in Glencoe that people who live up there know. Um, Strawberry Hill and Skokie Ridge. There are a lot of her houses there, but she designed houses, um, subdivisions, I should say, in Highland Park, in Glencoe, elsewhere. She designed a shopping center. She's this fascinating person. And um, in the Tribune stories, she's always shown driving her big yellow car. And there's this one great photo I love of her where she's wearing a fur coat to go inspect the subdivision she's building. Love that. She's totally got the like glamour puss of the 50s thing going. Yeah. And it's sort of indomitable when you read the stories. She was not just saying, oh, I think I'll build some houses. She's doing these, she's building subdivisions of a hundred homes and really going to town. Uh, she was called, one of the things the Tribune called her was the blonde builder of suburbs. <laughs> sure. Which I get a huge mm-hmm. kick out of. Right after 1949, she designs a house for herself and her family. This house that is for sale now is 1951. So this is very early in her career. This very likely is some friends saying, oh, we like your house. Will you build us one? It's not, we don't really know for sure, but this is before she's building hundred unit subdivisions when she's still just sort of saying, oh, I think I know how to build some modern homes that don't look like all those 
Tudors and colonials that other people have built. I love that that she just had the vision and it didn't occur to her that she couldn't. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think um, we have to say it was the 50s. I'm sure there was some support she needed from her husband. I mean, he had to sort of say, yeah, go ahead and do that. Because I'm sure there would have been husbands who said, yeah, design our house and then you're done. Well, just the like financial realities of opening a business account or something like that. You would have had to have spousal approval and all of that. But then it's hard to argue with success, right? She's doing so well. She's described in articles as the millionaires builder and things like that because she's doing so well. And and one thing we should point out is that she's you know riding a wave. There are a lot of people moving out from the city to in this case, the North Shore, but to the suburbs. And she's building in the North Shore, essentially, you know, the landing pads those people are going to have as they come out of the city. But, you know, that's business. She she did it right. She's building houses people are going to want when they come out of the city and selling them. Good for her. Yeah, definitely. You're right. That would be a good story. That should be someone should make a movie of her life. There's there's more. I We don't have time in the podcast, but there are whole other chapters that are just fascinating. Not like salacious or scandalous, just fascinating. She was clearly a force. Interesting. I I look forward to reading more about her. All right. Well, one other story I want to ask you about while you're here, and that is a a place in Pilsen that you wrote about made from a former two-flat. Yeah, this is an interesting one. This is on Laughlin Street in Pilsen. Um, It's a a two-flat built in the 1880s or 90s, built in the late 19th century. At some point, it was turned into a sort of a, a kind of a single family home, still functioned with different kitchens and things like that, but it was it was no longer really a two flat. These people bought it in 2019 to make it fully a single family home. And it's just, and really the reason to do this story was just that it looks really good. Um, it's this nice classic Chicago two flat with a fourth or a top floor jacked up on top with a tilted roof and a rooftop deck and clad in this nice, um, ribbed exterior cladding. It looks really good and it was done for a reason. Again, they're trying, they buy this building that's a little tired and they want to bring it back. They were designing it. They bought it again in 2019. Um, they designed it for themselves and their family, but now I've had a job change. So they're leaving. And that's unfortunate because, um, you know, they, they, they described it as an oasis. And one of the things I love is, you know, you're in Pilsen, which is pretty dense. They have a nice backyard. They have a rooftop deck. They have at least two other outdoor spaces. One is a nice little terrace off the primary bedroom. So the seller was talking to me about how, you know, you can sit up on the roof and look at the skyline, or you can sit down in the yard and behave just like people in the suburbs in their backyard, or you can sit in the terrace off your primary bedroom. Just a really, it looks really good. The work is by John Hanna, who is a really good architect. I've been writing about his houses since, I, as far as I know, the 1990s. And the other interesting thing about it is, um, in a sense, it is still a two flat because they carved out a small, uh, I think it's about 700 square foot rental. It's a 5,000 square foot building and they're most of it. But then there's this rental that has its own street entrance And they thought, you know, in-laws, nanny, instead, the way they've been using it is they've put it on Airbnb. They've put it up as a short-term rental uh, because it has a separate entrance. So it's got a couple of ways you could go. You might reintegrate it into your living space. You might operate it as a short-term rental. Who knows? It's a really nice building. And I don't think I said they're asking just under $1.7 million. 
All right. And again, there's photos there at chicagobusiness.com. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Oh, there are a couple of really interesting things happening, Amy, and I'm, I'm on them. One is, you know, we're going to end the first half of the year, June 30th, and uh, I'm going to look at that number I tracked, the $4 million and up properties. It looks like we're going to come in at about half as many as sold in the first half of 2022, which is pretty interesting. That's a big, big come down in the upper end sales. And then there's also, there's kind of a, a sort of a miniature pivot that the Cook County Land Bank has done. Hmm. They're sort of focusing their energy on one neighborhood. And I'm looking at that as well. Sounds good. All right. Well, we will meet right back here this time next week and talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up this Independence Day, expect to pay less for beef, but more for booze. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Listeners of Crane's Daily Gist are invited to join good to great author Jim Collins for a one-day workshop in Chicago on October 17th at Navy Pier. This is a rare opportunity for CEOs and executive teams to spend a day with Jim Collins to understand the application of the good to great concepts and Jim's full body of work on what makes great companies tick. Limited places available. Go to growthfaculty.com to purchase tickets and learn more. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. In recent reporting, Crane's Al Bigaloon took a look at the city's Invest Southwest program and why affordable housing projects in the program can sometimes require higher per-unit construction costs than their luxury counterparts. Galoon reported that in Invest Southwest, a massive economic development initiative launched four years ago by former Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Construction costs for the program's affordable housing projects in some of the city's most historically disinvested neighborhoods exceed $600,000 and even $700,000 per unit, which is higher than the $450,000 to $500,000 per unit for some high-end high-rises under construction in and around downtown. Backed by a $750 million public investment, Invest Southwest is a huge undertaking and continues under new mayor Brandon Johnson. He said during his campaign that he wants to boost funding for the program by $500 million per year. And as Galoon also noted in reporting, city officials are facing criticism now for subsidizing affordable housing that costs so much. So why is that? Officials at the Chicago Department of Housing and Department of Planning and Development declined to speak with cranes, but in statements they attribute the high construction budgets to recent increases in the cost of building materials and labor and interest rates, forces that have driven up the cost of market rate projects too. But they also say that affordable housing often costs more to build than conventional market rate housing because financing for the projects, which can include tax credits and tax-exempt bonds, can be especially complicated, resulting in large fees paid to lawyers and other professionals. Galoon reported that some say Invest Southwest projects are so expensive because they emphasize design, the result of the city's goal to build architectural showpieces in targeted neighborhoods. And indeed, the city's process of selecting Invest Southwest developers is essentially a design competition. Bill Eager, senior vice president of the Midwest Region for Preservation of Affordable Housing, a nonprofit, told Cranes, quote, anytime there's a design competition, those projects tend to be more expensive in general because there's a lot of pressure to get the design just right. He went on to say, you're looking to have a good wow factor and you want to win the competition. 
And as Galoo noted, by pushing for excellence in design rather than prioritizing efficiency, city officials believe the developments will have a transformational impact on their surrounding neighborhoods creating an economic ripple effect by attracting additional investment. So maximizing production of affordable housing isn't the primary objective. But even so, as Galoon also noted, affordable housing is perhaps surprisingly expensive to build, partly because it requires layers of financing from multiple sources. Financing for Thrive Exchange, for example, a 43-unit Invest Southwest project planned in South Shore, includes $10.6 million in low-income housing tax credits, $10.2 million in tax increment financing, or TIF, from the city, a $2.6 million loan from the city, and a $2.5 million senior mortgage. Mortgage. Lawyers, consultants, and other professionals charge large fees to assemble an affordable project's funding package, driving up costs that don't cover the actual construction of the building. As a result, Thrive Exchange's total cost is over $610,000 per unit. The Department of Housing said in a statement to Cranes, quote, The way we choose to fund affordable housing as a country, as a complex workaround through tax credits in exchange for equity rather than directly funding it, carries very high transaction costs that do not exist in the private sector. The statement went on to say, This is the price we pay as a country for choosing not to fund affordable housing directly. But in another point, Galoon also noted in reporting that city officials and some developers point out that scale is also a major factor driving construction budgets. The bigger the project, the lower the per-unit cost. Invest Southwest developments tend to be on the smaller side, especially when compared to the high-rises in downtown Chicago. Through the community engagement process, residents in Invest Southwest neighborhoods have pushed back on the idea of big buildings with lots of apartments, according to a planning department spokesperson. But even that doesn't tell the whole story. Galoon also noted that developers say the city's vetting process for Invest Southwest projects, which starts with a request for proposals and includes community meetings, is long and requires them to jump through a lot of hoops with multiple city agencies, and that too pushes up development costs. Developers must include high-cost, sustainable elements in their proposals and meet certain design standards as required by city officials, for instance. But another factor that drives up costs, according to developers, is the city's requirement that they seek bids from general contractors for Invest Southwest projects after they've completed the design process with the city. Galoon noted that though that intuitively perhaps makes sense in a way to keep costs down, developers say they can wring unnecessary costs out of a project if they select a general contractor at the beginning of the design process, not at the end. In a statement, a spokesperson for the former mayor says, quote, Mayor Lightfoot rejects the premise that development in these communities should be done on the cheap and instead centered a commitment to high-quality, sustainable projects that used world-class design and amenities to spur more growth around them. The statement continued, quote, Furthermore, Invest Southwest activated an unprecedented level of public engagement, leading to additional costs around funding of state community needs and priorities. Affordable housing is the biggest and sometimes only component of most but not all Invest Southwest developments, Galoon noted. According to a Crane's review of cost data for nine Invest Southwest housing projects that have been approved or selected by the city, two cost less than $500,000 per unit, four cost $600,000 to $700,000, and three exceed $700,000, with the average cost being just over $653,000. 
Galoo noted that cost data on private projects is not publicly available, but several developers interviewed by Cranes said per-unit costs of upscale apartments typically range from $450,000 to $500,000. And there's a simple reason for that, Galoo noted, with the most expensive market-rate apartment buildings in downtown Chicago rarely selling for more than $550,000 per unit, many developers would lose money on a sale if their costs were any higher. Find more reporting about Invest Southwest at chicagobusiness.com. Medical supplier Medline has named a new CEO, promoting Executive Vice President Jim Boyle to the position effective October 1st. Boyle will replace Charlie Mills, who will retire from the role but remain chairperson of the company's board of directors. President Andy Mills and Chief Operating Officer Jim Abrams are also retiring from those roles but will be vice chairpersons of the board. Company veteran Jim Piggott will become the new president and COO. Northfield-based Medline is one of the world's largest medical products manufacturers and distributors, with more than $21 billion in annual sales and more than 35,000 workers. The company ranks number five on Crane's latest list of the largest privately held companies in the Chicago area, with 2022 revenue growing 5.2% to $21.2 billion. Medline makes, sells, and distributes more than half a million different kinds of medical products, including wheelchairs, sample cups, face masks, and anesthesia kits. The company also makes the striped swaddling blanket that almost every U.S. hospital-born newborn is wrapped in, and owns brands such as Curad Bandages. The announcement of the new leadership change comes about two years after Medline agreed to sell itself to a consortium of private equity firms, including Blackstone Group and Carlyle Group, in a deal that Bloomberg reported was worth more than $30 billion. Medline says it has invested more than $2 billion building out its warehouse and distribution capabilities since 2018 through what it calls its Healthcare Resilience Initiative. Company executives have said the investment in more domestic manufacturing, distribution, and IT is intended to ease supply chain disruptions in healthcare. Bloomberg noted that as part of that initiative, Medline has constructed eight distribution centers totaling 9.7 million square feet. In 2022, Medline completed a 125 million, 1.4 million square foot distribution center in Grays Lake. It also opened a $90 million, 1.2 million square foot facility in West Jefferson, Ohio in 2020, announcing just last week that the facility was fully operational. The Chicago metro area is approaching a record low unemployment level, according to federal survey data released by the Illinois Department of Employment Security. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines noted in reporting that at the same time, however, other federal data shows the state and metro area still haven't quite regained all the jobs they lost during earlier phases of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hines noted that according to surveys released by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and IDES, the Chicago Naperville Arlington Heights statistical area reported an unemployment rate of just 3.2 percent in May, though that number is not seasonal adjusted. That is near the lowest level ever, according to IDES, with only a 3% figure in November of 2019 coming in lower. The city of Chicago proper came in a bit higher at 3.6%, which is higher than the low mark of 3.3% hit in December of 2019. Hines noted that the survey reflects only people who are actively seeking but have not found a job, and that the comparable state figure is 3.8%, a decline of 0.8% from 4.6% a year ago. Seasonally adjusted, the statewide figure is 4.1%. 
Hines also noted that Illinois' rate is better or within one half of a percentage point of that in California, Texas, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Michigan. Of the big states, only Florida, with an unemployment rate of 2.6 percent, is notably better than Illinois. But as Hines also pointed out, when it comes to jobs, however, there is no question that Illinois and Chicago continue to lag, though not by a huge amount. While the U.S. overall and most states have added jobs compared to pre-pandemic numbers, Illinois and Chicago still have not. In the Chicago area, Hines noted, total non-farm employment in May of around 3.8 million was 8,000 people below the pre-pandemic high, not seasonally adjusted. The statewide figures are seasonally adjusted but show a similar gap, he noted, with May's total non-farm payroll jobs around 6,130,000 compared to the pre-pandemic high of 6,145,000. But Hines also noted that all of that suggests that Illinois' population loss in recent years is having an impact, though IDES says the labor force participation rate of 64.7% is 0.4% higher than the pre-pandemic peak in January of 2020. Chicagoans planning to have a barbecue this 4th of July might save money on meat, but will certainly spend more for alcohol. Crane's Sophie Rogers reported, citing the May Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index for the region, that prices for meats, poultry, fish, and eggs are down 1.8 percent from last summer. Meanwhile, alcoholic beverages are up by 11.6 percent. Leo Feller, chief economist at market research firm Numerator, said, quote, people are going out more, and this often involves buying alcohol at retail stores or bars and restaurants. He continued by saying, this isn't a story of declining supply pushing prices up. It's a story of robust consumer demand pushing up prices. According to Numerator's panel data, alcohol consumption in the Chicago metro area has grown on average of 13 percent per year since right before the pandemic. Rogers noted in reporting that turning to non-alcoholic drinks won't necessarily lower the bill at the grocery store either. Costs for soft drinks are up 6.5 percent from last year, and also prices for fruits and vegetables are up 6.9 percent since last season. However, Chicagoans who are planning to travel for the long weekend may feel some relief from the 16.1 percent decrease in gas prices since last summer. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, as well as Mike Connor from At Properties. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.